Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. The most well-known Martin Luther King Jr. speech, the I Have a Dream speech, was delivered in August of 1963 at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Dr. King always had a keen focus on economic issues. He died in 1968, and we have celebrated this holiday since 1986. So what has been the arc of progress with respect to economic inequality between black and white Americans? We're lucky to be joined this morning in the studio, who actually made it, notwithstanding the traffic, by Thomas Maloney, an economics professor at the University of Utah, who has studied economic inequality for many years. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on Mountain Money. Good morning, thanks for having me. So one way of looking at economic progress is to sort of break things into eras or chunks. Um, if we if we look at the sort of let's start with the concept of industrialization in the early 20th century that provided a wealth of opportunities for a range of americans can you share a bit about what your research revealed about migration and the way in which black workers were treated at ford for example yeah so you're right i think we want to think about the uh history of racial inequality in the 20th century as episodic there are things that matter uh more and less at, at different points in time and that pre-World War II period and sort of the, the first wave of the Great Migration beginning about, uh, say, 1916, uh, running up, say, to 1940 is a really important era. You've got, uh, for the, really for the first time, large numbers of African-Americans leaving the South. Northern employers are recruiting these folks because they can't rely on the immigrant labor force they'd used for lower-level industrial jobs. Immigration is reduced during the war and then reduced by policy. So Ford, in particular, is a massively important employer of African-Americans. And um, we uh, were able to do some work looking at, at Ford personnel records to really track uh, how things went for these workers. So Ford is using uh, very, very large numbers of African-American workers when other automakers aren't, other employers in Detroit aren't, so he has tremendous market power. The way that plays out is not uh, so much in pay differences, but in working condition differences. He uses these workers in uh, the most dangerous jobs, the most physically demanding jobs, Jobs that if you hired a, uh, a white worker into, those folks would, would leave. They'd turn over. Black workers in these jobs have much lower turnover rates. This is kind of their one opportunity for a family wage uh, in the area. So that market power, uh, you know, allows Ford uh, to use these workers in this way. And, and I think the, the Ford story kind of illustrates the complexity of labor market discrimination. I mean, there are a lot of margins here that matters. Ford is he's employing these workers, right? He's employing a lot of them and paying them, you know, well relative to their other options, but also sort of exploiting the power that that gives him. So, um, so it's, it's, uh, there are sort of lots of margins, I think, uh, on which discrimination can play out, particularly in that era when, you know, you had Ford and, and a few other places that were using black workers and other folks who weren't. So kind of this, uh, this whole kind of racial hierarchy is still getting worked out. So that's interesting. Were the, were, although they were, you mentioned that they were getting sort of less desirable, more dangerous jobs, were there still actually enough so that these workers could get a living wage to support a family? Well, they were. Uh, what they could get there was was better than what they could get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And and certainly, I think it, at the sort of in the early days of this, uh, this was seen as a uh, a very well paying job. It was initially even a very well paying job for white. Labor Ford famously um, kind of raises his uh, wage well above the market for a time to attract workers, but that but then doesn't sort of raise it afterward. It becomes more intense. It becomes less well-paying. And so what you see, uh, sort of in the especially in the 1930s, is 
um, you know, that, that, that folks, you know, these black workers stay there because there really is nowhere else to go. So it, it's, it's, um, it's better than the alternatives, I guess, better than many of the alternatives. We could probably get off into a long digression about how black workers were treated by the development of the unions in the, in the 40s. Um, were, were they given full union participation? So that sort of comes over time. Certainly, certainly earlier on uh, in the sort of craft union era in, in, in the 20s and early 30s, um, black workers are excluded from, from many in, industrial unions. And in part, what employers are doing when they're recruiting black labor out of the South is uh, recruiting workers to replace striking white labor. When the position of uh, organized labor is made more secure through the Wagner Act in the 1930s and, and sort of subsequently, um, then black workers are better incorporated into the industrial uh, union movement. And in the long run, um, I think organized labor is a very important source of uh, sort of, you know, gain and stability for black labor. And by the uh, 1980s, 1990s, um, black workers are, are uh, kind of more commonly represented by industrial unions, though at a time when industrial union is, unionism is declining. So it's, it's again, a varied and, and sort of episodic story. Um, but by the, you know, by the 40s, there's a lot of conflict there, obviously. Hmm. It gets worked out first. But, um, but as we come through that, unions become important, I think, to the stability of black labor. So, so we're sort of segueing you know, forward in time. There were a raft of government programs that provided opportunities for Americans, particularly returning GIs after World War II. Can you talk a little bit about the war and post-war programs and how they impacted black American economic opportunities? Yeah, so this is sort of, an, a, a, sort of a second episode in a way, uh, beginning around 1940. You, you have tremendous uh, demand for production labor, and that's uh, helping out. It just sort of those market forces are helping out black workers. You have continuing migration. And then you have um, GI Bill-related policies. I, I guess the first that we normally think about uh, has to do with education and the uh, access to funds for higher education. And the policy is, you know, on its face, uh, sort of neutral with regard to race. That is, you know, black veterans have, uh, in terms of the policy, the same access um, that, that white workers do. However, um, black folks are still disproportionately living in the South. So you can sort of tell me that I have access to these funds to go to college, but if the colleges are segregated, if they're not admitting me, uh, then the reach of that policy is going to be pretty limited. So, and, 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 and I, there are places, of course, that I can go as an African-American in the South, uh, HBCUs, for instance, and those, but those places are um, pretty under-resourced for accepting this, um, this big wave of uh, entry of, of new um, of, of veterans who've gotten these funds. So if you look at the impact of, um, of GI Bill education benefits, it certainly uh, opens up access to education and, and upward mobility for many black veterans, but not really for Southern resident black veterans. It, it really has bigger effects uh, in the North. And with regard to, um, to housing uh, subsidy policies and mortgage insurance, um, it's a kind of a similar thing. I mean, you, you can enact this um, facially neutral policy, but the ability of black veterans to use those benefits is going to be conditioned by the local decision makers who are going to decide to make a loan. So you can tell me I have access to these funds and this mortgage insurance, but if, this, if my local banker says, you know, I view African-American borrowers as high risk or uh, I view the neighborhood you live in, as high risk and I'm not going to make the loan, that's going to, again, sort of limit the reach of the policy. So, um, and, and of course, building wealth through home ownership is tremendously important. And that's going to have 
you know, very long-term impacts uh, on racial inequality in the U.S. And so, as a practical matter, were black American veterans able to access those mortgage funds? I mean, I get, I get the sense that, like you said, on paper they could, but on the, on the street they couldn't. So not, so not nearly in the way that, uh, that, white, that white folks could. And, 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 and sort of differences in lending practices really um, persist uh, for a long time, and the ability of black, workers, black families to build equity in homes is going to be limited you know, well, in, uh, you know, well beyond the war. Okay, so the next area I guess we should touch on is the civil rights movement itself. We talk about the 60s and uh, legislation is passed, voting rights, other rights. How did those sort of social programs enacted in the 60s uh, affect income inequality or wealth inequality for black Americans? So it, it, it's interesting. I mean, of course, you know, before the middle of the 1960s, there isn't much to look at in the way of policy. And so you can, you can find just, just very explicitly discriminatory practices and job postings and so forth. Um, and so uh, that, that environment's going to radically change. Um, I think economists have been a little bit skeptical about the sort of causal impact of anti-discrimination policy in some ways. And to some degree, it's just sort of hard to measure. You, you sort of have the question of uh, maybe the policy is passed because the society is already moving in a, in a more uh, non-discriminatory direction. And so kind of what the policy itself is doing is maybe reflecting other stuff that's going on uh, rather than sort of leading that change. So that's kind of been a, a, a bit of a view, but there's, there's work uh, that, I, that I have found very uh, useful by uh, James Heckman and John Donahue who uh, look at this in detail for the 1960s. And there are, there are two kinds of labor market policies that are important here. One is just uh, equal employment policy. So if you think you've faced discrimination in the workplace, you bring a case, you try to get uh, redress for that. The other is federal contract compli compliance policy, which is uh, enacted you know, under an executive order in 1965. And basically what that says is if you want to do business with the federal government, um, you've got to demonstrate that you are behaving in a non-discriminatory way. It's sort of preemptive in that sense. And it also includes language about affirmative action to take steps to redress uh, any, any shortcomings in your practices. So Donahue and Heckman say, Contract compliance policy has uh, straightforward, visible, explicit penalties if you aren't sort of doing the right thing here. And so they look at the um, South Carolina textile industry in the 1960s to examine the reach of this policy. That's an industry that had a lot of government contracts. You can imagine, particularly you know, in the, in the sort of uh, ramping up for Vietnam era, uh, that's going to be part of it. And if you look at uh, the South Carolina textile industry, Throughout the 20th century, there's, there's almost no employment of uh, black production labor until 1965, and then it just, uh, it just sort of bends up. Mm. It's, real, it's almost, it's almost too, it almost seems almost too effective in a way. So, um, and if you look at the counties that had more uh, government contracts, you see the employment uh, of black workers grow uh, more dramatically in those counties. And so, you know, I think Donahue and Heckman are persuaded that uh, policy can have causal impacts. It can matter uh, if, it's, um, if it's got sort of explicit and, and measurable penalties and if it's enforced. That's really, I think, an important piece of it. I mean, we can have these laws on the books, but whether we're going to put the resources into, uh, into carrying them out, I think turns out to be really important. So, so as we go forward, what do studies tell us about the way that policies like affirmative action and DEI have sort of affected uh, black economic status, 
post the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, so so if you look at sort of the, the black relative wage, sort of the, the median wage for black workers uh, as a percentage of white workers, that sort of peaks around, around 1982 and sort of stagnates. There are two reasons, I think, why. One is reduced enforcement of policy, not enough resources to carry out a policy that now is taking on age discrimination and other things. And also, generally, the income distribution is getting wider. African Americans are still more likely to be below the middle. So that growing general inequality is going to affect them more and harm uh, sort of black-white equity as well. And so that's another big point, I think, is that uh, the kind of way racial inequality plays out has a lot to do with uh, the way the, the larger economy is evolving. Okay. Uh, Tom, anything else you want to touch on before we go? Well, I would uh, just, just add that uh, there are a lot of events at the University of Utah this week. I'll be uh, on an economic plenary uh, on Thursday at, I believe, 4.30 at the Garf Building. We'll talk about wealth, certainly an important part of the story. Yeah, because I think wealth and income are the big building blocks, and understanding those distinctions, which still linger, right, oh, for sure. is, is really fascinating. Yeah. We've been sp speaking with Professor Tom Maloney from the University of Utah about sort of black-white income and wealth inequality. Tom, thanks for joining us on this Martin Luther King holiday. Thank you very much. Tony Stewart is an internationally recognized financial preparedness advocate, podcaster, and award-winning author. His newest book, The Get Ready Blueprint, a 52-week guide to changing the way you think about money, presents the Get Ready Method, which he created to empower people to con take control of their money while providing a framework for integrating financial products, financial advice, and advisors. Tony Stewart joins us this morning to highlight the areas we should focus on this coming year. Tony, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here today. You've written a number of books and received four awards for excellence in financial literacy education. How long have you thought about producing this guide and why were you excited to tackle this topic in your book? Uh, I've been thinking about the subject for a few years. Um, it's it's an evolution of my career. I, I spend a lot of time as a consultant uh, for different financial advisors, attorneys. Um, I spent some time um, as a volunteer with the California Department of Insurance. And the thing that kept coming up was people not really understanding what they had and what they owned in terms of financial services and products, and then understanding how everything fit together. Um, you know, they spent a lot of time looking at things in isolation rather than focusing on the bigger picture. And and so that sort of stimulated it to come up with this book, which is, is really not a standard text where you read through chapters, but is more a compilation of checklists grouped into monthly focus areas and then week by week. How do you intend for readers to use the book? Well, um, actually, you know, the, they can do it on a week-by-week -week basis. Uh, I have a supporting newsletter uh, that can help them. But the idea is that it's one simple action item each week rather than reading a thick book <laughs> on money, which, you know, there's a lot of fantastic books on money. But, you know, it's a lot of information to absorb and like with anything is people don't remember the majority of it by the time they're done. So this is a way where they can actually continue to use uh, various pieces uh, each week. I feel as I was looking through this that there's also, I'm assuming, a benefit of 
every week prioritizing your money and how you manage it and keeping it in the forefront. Is that is that correct to assume? A hundred percent, because, you know, every day we're catching some aspect of our financial lives. So the book starts out with a little bit about financial habits and mindset, because those are really important about how we approach money and think about these different products and services. But as you point out, everything is happening all the time uh, that has to do with money. So we need to, you know, spend some time on it. So the book is obviously centered around the get ready framework. Can you highlight this method and what do you perceive its benefits to be? Well, the benefits are is that it empowers the consumer uh, to take control of their financial life rather than being kind of swept along on the river of <laughs> financial services and products. Uh, so it starts out with the first thing is to start thinking about your goals first rather than the products is, you know, so often when you talk to something about money is, you know, the conversation is like, hey, is Bitcoin good? Is the stock good? Should I buy this insurance policy rather than saying, okay, well, my goal is to be financially independent at age 55. What is the best tool to help me get there? And that's how I think change in the conversation will be really helpful for people. And I think that's, you know, my big question, because you talk about the financial product. I assume that we always you know, as we talk to our friends about what they're doing financially, <clears throat> it's about, you know, following the Joneses and what the Joneses is, but it may not be that, you know, investing in Bitcoin is what we need just because someone we talk to highlights what they're doing. Exactly. And look at it this way. If you went to the doctor because, you know, three of your friends had LASIK, you know, would you go to your doctor and say, hey, I need LASIK if you have nothing wrong with your eyes? And I think, you know, that that, you know, for me, I, I use the medical analogies quite a bit is for to people to think about that. You know, what medical services would you need and when would you need them? And to think about it in that way, uh, because I think that rephrases things uh, for people and puts them in a different perspective. So this concept of having, you know, something to look at each week, can you give us a couple of examples of, of an individual weekly th uh, program or chapter that I would find useful? Uh, definitely. You know, like uh, one week is reviewing uh, the beneficiaries, not only on your insurance products, but also on your state planning, on your bank accounts and on your retirement accounts is like I, I've seen uh, through the course of my career is people, you know, with their ex-wives, uh, <laughs> you know, on their life insurance policy, you know, they forgot the kid who came along 10 years after the other kids, uh, you know, so it's it's those little things that we don't think about it. So to me, that's one of the most valuable weeks. Um, another week is having a family financial meeting uh, where you sit down with your significant other and maybe your older kids and you talk about money issues uh, and get everything out in the open. I think, you know, so often um, not everything's in, in the same place. And I think that's kind of how you start us off is, you know, kind of understanding what you've got and if, you've, if you know how to get to it all. Yeah, 100%. You know, a big part of it is just inventorying your financial life is, you know, uh, we may forget about, uh, you know, a 401k at a former employer, uh, you know, that we may want to roll over. Uh, it's so easy to forget things like that or forget that you have a group disability insurance policy through your employer. So you may not need as much individual disability insurance. So it's being able to focus on everything you can start to see uh, what's missing, 
as well as sometimes, you know, you have a duplicate product or as we talked about a product you don't really need and you can get rid of, you know, that's the way to really save money and to be more efficient in your financial life is to just have those products and services that you need. Now, this book takes the reader through 52 weeks with monthly focuses each month. Is it the intention for the reader to then refresh and begin month one again each year? Or is this once you've you've done it once, it's set and you, you can forget about it? Uh, the goal is for people to go back and do it each year is because things change. We either have a life event uh, that may change things, you know, the birth of a new child, uh, change in marital status, a change in job status, or products and services change, or our needs change, like we have a new car, and so maybe we need to change our automobile insurance. And the other thing about it, too, is that it's 52 weeks. People aren't going to hit every week, you know, they're going to go on vacation, they're not going to hit that week. So it's an opportunity to do it again the following year, so you don't have to worry about it, like if you miss week 21, eh, not a big deal because you're going to come around to week 21 again in the following year. I know that there are monthly focused areas, one of which is your team. Talk to us a little bit about what you expect people to focus on with looking at their team. Well, it's both your internal team, which might be your domestic partner, uh, your spouse, uh, your children, but it's also with your adult parents is how are you working and communicating with your adult parents is you know have you talked to them about their wishes uh in terms of their advanced health care do they have an advanced health care directive do you know where it's located do you know what their wishes are um but it's also the advisors that you work with to review your advisory team is like do you have an accountant do you need an accountant and to go through those different facets so it's thinking about teamwork not only, you know, with your advisory team, but just, you know, with your team, whatever you, uh, you know, uh, your accountability partner. So if you're not married, you may have an accountability partner. Uh, But I think it's a big part of it. But I think the other thing is a lot of us have aging parents and we haven't really sat down and talked to them about what their wishes are. Sometimes we we get to that point and it it's almost action time versus plan time. And the book highlights the need to plan for life stages. Can you talk about what are some key life stages where it's especially important for us to focus on our financial health? Um, Well, I think one is a new job is super important is because we're going to get employee benefits, hopefully. Uh, And employee benefits may include your health insurance, life insurance, disability insurance, dental insurance, retirement plan, a whole bunch of things, uh, you know, so those are going to impact what you do uh, personally. So if you have a uh, generous uh, 401k plan from your employer, for example, you may want to cut back on your contributions to an individual retirement account, IRA. Uh, If you have a new child, uh, you know, you may want to think about opening up a college savings account or, you know, as we talked about updating your life insurance policies and estate plans. So, you you know, it depends on the life event, uh, but, you know, there's different things that are going to impact it. Like if you get divorced, that's going to change things dramatically uh, in terms of retitling property, separating assets, and all those different things. 
you know, as someone who obviously has had contact with a lot of different people and have done a lot of different things, I have to ask you, what is the common, most common thing you see where you go, I can't believe this is so dumb. I can't believe that people have done this. <laughs> it's not ask more questions and to be oh. more curious. Is I've been involved even in um, some cases where there's been some bad marketing practices, uh, you know, borderline financial abuse, financial predators. But a lot of the time, what I see is that people have the opportunities where they could have asked questions and been a little more curious about their money, uh, but instead they floated along with what they were told. Now, there are some very bad actors out there, and some, and there are a lot of occasions where people are just purely taken advantage of, but there's a lot of situations where it's been very borderline, and if somebody had asked a couple more questions or been a little more curious or been a little less greedy, um, you know, they could have taken control rather than letting uh, the financial representative take control. At the end of each month within the book, you include a place for reflection. Why is this practice important when looking at your finances? Uh, because the mental part is so important is, you know, your mindset. How do you think about money is, you know, there's a lot of money shaming, for example. Um, money shaming might be, you know, you feel bad about your credit score. You know, like, what, why is my credit score so low? Did I do something? And, you know, that's, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, whatever your credit score number is, it's the number that it is. It's about the changes you make going forward. So it's, you know, that kind of reflection helps you check in to say, okay, am I stressed out about this? Um, do I feel ashamed about this? Did I ask the right questions? And how did I do? What did I do well this month? Because we also don't, you know, give ourselves a little bit of grace for saying like, hey, I did a really good job. I contributed to my retirement account this month. Um, you know, I balanced my checkbook, you know, whatever it was, is, you know, we, we do a lot of good things, but we're always worried about the next thing that we have to accomplish. We have been spending some time with Tony Stewart. He is the author of the Get Ready Blueprint, a 52-week guide to changing the way you think about money. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money. Yeah, thanks for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.